Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. Brace yourselves for today, as today's story is often known as the worst murder in the world. And I won't be holding back on the details because I think that it's important for people to know exactly what this lovely woman with a promising future in front of her endured. Lots of Japanese names and places, so I will do my best to pronounce them as properly as I can. This is the murder and torture of Junku Furuta. There is a place in Japan called Misato, which is a city in Sirama Prefecture, Japan, and it's actually a very small city of only about 143,000 people, but a density of about 4,700 people per square kilometer. Because the city itself is only 30 square kilometers or just under 12 square miles. So just to put that in perspective, the global average is 25 and the U.S. is 295 people per square kilometer. In Canada, we're at 11 people per square kilometer. The Oba River runs through the center of the city and is located about 20 kilometers from Tokyo. In Misato is where Junku Furuta was born to her parents on January 18, 1971. I don't know her mom's name, but her dad's name was Akira, and later a younger brother joined the family, and then another. She was attending Yashio Minami High School and worked part-time as a pla- in a plastic factory. Junku was saving her money for a trip that she wanted to take after graduation, and she had already gotten a job at an electronics store lined up upon her graduation. She was an excellent student and worked hard in school. She was also a very popular girl with one slightly less realistic goal of one day becoming a pop star. Junku went to school with a problem kid named Hiroshi Mayano, who had a reputation as a school bully, and there were rumors that he had some connection to the Yakuza. The Yakuza are organized crime and transnational, also known as the Gokudo or the Extreme Path. They refer to themselves as a chivalrous group, but make no mistake, they are sophisticated, wealthy, and extremely violent. They have a strict code amongst themselves, and often the initiation is the amputation of your left little finger. Unlucky Junku became the object of 18-year-old Hiroshi's affections, and she was not interested and let him know so. Hiroshi wasn't particularly used to rejection. He had long been able to bully pretty much anyone he wanted into getting what he wanted, including his parents, who had grown terrified of him because of his violent temper. And Hiroshi had some unpleasant friends that he liked to hang around with. And this is where things can get a bit muddy. So I'll try and tell it in a way that we can keep everyone straight. 
So, so far we have Junku, Hiroshi, and now his friends, Shinji Minato, 16, Joe Ogura, 17, and Yaushi Watanabe, also 17. So we're going to go with Junku, Hiroshi, Shinji, Joe, and Yazushi. In late November 1988, Hiroshi and Shinji were hanging around in a local park, basically just being bad apples. They were used to being bad apples. In fact, it was a favorite pastime of theirs. In fact, rape and gang rape were particular favorite activities. And on this particular evening around 8.30 p.m., they noticed Junku riding her bike through the park on her way home. Shinju kicked her off her bike, and Hiroshi, playing the chivalrous savior, pretending to intervene to save her from this obviously not very nice young man, and of course, Hiroshi offered to walk her home. After all, it's dangerous around for a young pretty woman on her own. Now, it's not clear if Junku agreed amicably to this or felt too intimidated to say no, but instead of walking her home, he took her to an abandoned warehouse nearby where he proceeded to rape her while telling her that he had Yakuza connections and would kill her if she screamed or tried to get away. Hiroshi called his other friends, Shinji Jo and Yasushi, and bragged about what he was currently doing. Joe told him to keep her there and let them rape her as well. So this is not going well for Junku, and it's only going to get worse from here. So after a few rounds of raping this innocent young woman, around 3 a.m., he took her back to the park where Shinji Jo and Yasushi were waiting for them. To keep her under their control and from yelling out, they went through her backpack and found her home address and told her that they knew where she lived now and the Yakuza would kill her if she tried anything. They took her to Shinji's parents' house, if you can believe that, in the Ayesi district. Shinji's house was kind of a regular hangout for the boys, so Shinji's parents didn't think too much of it when the boys arrived with Junku in tow, who they told her was his girlfriend. The next day, they forced Junku to call her parents and tell them that she had run away and was staying with a friend and not to come looking for her, and assured them that she was safe. And that night, Hiroshi invited two other friends, Tetsuo Nakumura and Kochi Ihara, over to have what they considered some fun. The two guests found Junku in a room in the upper level of the house, and the boys sat around drinking cough syrup and pretending that they were taking drugs. Junku made a run for it, but was caught by Koichi and put a pillow over her face. Her screams woke up Shinji's parents, but they told him it was nothing and go back to bed. Shinji's parents eventually became very aware of what was happening in their house, but never called the police because they were terrified of their own son and how violent he was known to be. Junku begged for her release and tried to appeal to their humanity, but it only made them taunt her and torture her more. Over the next 44 days, Junku was raped and tortured repeatedly. During one of the times others were invited over to have their way with Junku, one of the guests didn't like what was happening and told his brother about it. His brother contacted the police, but when they showed up at Shinji's house, his parents assured them there was no girl there, and they left and never followed up again. During these horrific 44 days of torture, not only was she raped by the four boys and others, estimated to be close to 100 that were invited over, around the range of more than 400 times, they also raped her with scissors, skewers, lit fireworks, and a light bulb. 
Even if Junku had survived her injuries and the ordeal, she would have never been able to use her bowels or bladder again without a catheter or a colostomy bag. And why is that? Because the light bulb was lit at the time and exploded inside her body, leaving severe burns which caused nerve damage to the internal sphincters that control bowel and bladder functions. In fact, Hiroshi's later own statement, the final time she did use a washroom like a normal person, it took her almost an hour to crawl down the stairs to the bathroom. One time she did manage to get to a phone and dialed the police, but before she could even get one word out, she was discovered. Hiroshi told the police when they called back that it had just been an innocent mistake. They poured lighter fluid on her legs and set her on fire as punishment. Okay, I'm going to list for you the injuries, indignities, and torture that Junku, only 17 years old, endured for those 44 days. And if you don't think that you can handle it, fast forward about a minute or so. They shaved her pubic hair and forced her to dance and masturbate in front of them. At one time, she was raped by 12 different men in one night. They made her sleep out on the balcony with little clothing on, and actually she was forced to be naked most of the time. She was forced to smoke a number of cigarettes all at once, inhale paint thinner, force-fed alcohol. She was photographed and videotaped. She was punished with beatings each time she urinated on herself. She was given only milk to drink or eat except for the cockroaches and feces she was forced to eat. Some of the other things inserted to her were a lit match, a metal rod, a bottle, a rotisserie chicken set of tongs. She was hung from the ceiling by her arms and beaten with golf clubs, bamboo sticks, and iron rods. Her eyelids and genitals were burned with lighters, cigarettes, and hot wax. Needles were stuck in her breasts and her nipples were ripped off with pliers. She was also put in a freezer for several hours and all of the bones in her hands were broken by stomping on them. And during this, she repeatedly asked for death. And guys, this is all while she was still alive. I cannot fathom how much this young woman would have eventually started to pray for the release of death. I will be right back after these brief messages. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And all the while, Shinji's parents, grown-ass adults, knew what was going on and refused to hear Junku's cries for help because the boy they had raised had gotten involved in a gang and they feared their own son. Then, on the evening of January 4th, 1989, after losing a game of Mejong, which in some reports he forced Junku to play to show her she wasn't a bright student anymore after all of her torture, but I can't confirm it was actually Junku he was playing, uh, Hiroshi punched her repeatedly until she fell into a stereo and lost consciousness and began having convulsions. 
Um, as she was bleeding and pus was oozing from the burns on her legs, they put plastic gloves on to continue to beat her for about four hours. Eventually, they dropped an exercise ball onto her stomach, and Jungkook was finally released from her captures into death. She was only 14 days from her 18th birthday. Afraid of facing murder charges, they wrapped her in blankets and put her in a suitcase and then into a 55-gallon drum, which they filled with wet cement. They then discarded the drum in a cement truck that they found in Tokyo. During her capture, Junku had said that she had just wanted to watch the final episode of Dragonfly, which I believe is kind of like Japan's version of American Idol. It was what she had wanted to do when she was on her way home that night. Uh, Hiroshi had taped it and put a copy in the suitcase with her body before discarding her. Why? Well, not because he suddenly felt bad, but because he didn't want Junku coming back as a ghost, like in The Grudge, and haunt him. Now, if all of that hadn't been horrible enough to listen to, Junku's body, because of her injuries and just everything, had started to smell because her flesh was literally rotting off her living body, so they had started to lose interest in her anyways. So they had gang-raped a 19-year-old girl just before Junku had died. I mean, God forbid they go a day or two without having a vessel to rape and torture. And this poor young girl was also accosted on her way home from work. On January 23rd, Hiroshi and Joe were brought in for questioning for that gang rape. And during the interrogation, Hiroshi was told of an unsolved murder that they were looking into. And he figured that they were talking about Junku. He was also the, under the impression that Joe had confessed in the other room. So Hiroshi told police where they could find Junku's body. Um, they were actually referring to the murder of another young mother, which is a case that is still unsolved. Junku's broken and battered body was found and identified by fingerprints. Her face was swollen so badly she was unrecognizable. She was severely malnourished and the cause of death was severe traumatic shock. Now, just in case you were wondering, Tetsuo and Koichi were arrested for rape because of their DNA was found on and inside Junku's body. Now, I'm not sure of their sentences, but at least they were arrested. Uh, none of the other estimated to be 100 men that raped her during her capture were ever identified, let alone arrested for taking part. Junku's funeral was held on April 2nd, 1989, and one of her friends said, quote, Jun-chan, welcome back. I have never imagined that we would see you again this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we all made for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard that the principal has presented you with a graduation certificate, so we graduated together, all of us. Jun-chan, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. Uh, her would-be boss at the electronic store she was going to work at after graduation placed her uniform in her casket with her. Hiroshi, Shinji, Jo, and Yasushi were all tried as juveniles, which was the standard at the time. And same as here in Canada, youth offenders and youth victims are not allowed to be named, so they were all referred to as A, B, C, and D, and then Junku was known as E. Um, however, her name was leaked and spread all over creation, so a Japanese magazine headed by editor-in-chief Yushi Hanada said, To make a long story short, we decided that beasts don't have human rights, and published their names as well. They all pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death. You know, rather than murder, because that just sounds bad. 
And because at the time, a youth couldn't be charged for murder, actually. And in July 1990, Hiroshi was sentenced to 17 years. He was 18 at the time. He appealed, but the appeal court added three more years to his sentence. Uh, Yasushi got only five to seven years. He was 17 at the time as well. Joe got eight years in juvie before being released in 1999 and Shinji got five to nine years. He was 16 at the time. His parents never faced any charges, but Junku's parents filed a civil suit against them and was awarded $370,000 US for not even trying to help Junku. Japan does have capital punishment and it has been given as a sentence to minors, but there are Rumors that the ties that the group had to Yakuza kept them out of the death chamber and given light light sentences. Hiroshi would be released from prison in 2009. In 2013, he was arrested for fraud, um, but was released. He still has close ties to the Yakuza and lives a pretty cushy life. Loves a good pyramid scheme these days and makes a good living from them. In July 2004... Ogura kidnapped and assaulted a manager that he thought his girlfriend was involved with. Uh, Joe shoved the man into his truck, drove him to the bar that his mother owned and beat him for four hours. He was sentenced to seven years and has since been released again in 2009. His mom vandalized Junku's grave saying she had ruined her son's life. Shinji stayed quiet until 2018 when he then beat a 32-year-old man with a metal rod and slashed his throat. The man managed to survive. Uh, There are rumors that whatever his sentence had been for that, he is living with his parents today. Yasushi was released in 1996 and has stayed quiet and apparently out of trouble. In 1997, there was a string of child murders in Kobe, Japan, and a 14-year-old boy was convicted of the murders, including two young children. Uh, There was a public pressure to revamp the youth laws, and in 2000, the age of a youth could be charged with a crime was lowered from 16 to 14. Now let's talk a little bit about violent crime in Japan um, to give you some perspective on this. The Yakuza has been around since about the 1700s. They follow codes of conduct similar to the samurai, and they are like the mafia in that they are family relationships. Uh, Father-son activities are passed down from generations to generations. They consider themselves to be saviors of Japanese virtues. Since the 1960s, they have been given protection from police, politicians, and the legal system. And in the 1990s, the three largest syndicates dominated organized crime. In 2013, the Chinese dragons, Kanto Rengo, were classified as pseudo-Yakuza organizations and now just as dangerous. Uh, But crime in Japan is actually not as bad as the population numbers would have you believe. The majority of criminal offenses in Japan fall into the categories of larceny and negligent homicide. Uh, Their intentional homicide rate is one of the lowest in the world at 0.3 per 100,000 people. But recently, human trafficking has become an issue. Japan is now a major destination and source for both men and women in forced labor and sex trafficking. Um, Now, listen, I'm not going to try and shame Japan or say it's a bad place or the people are bad. I'm just highlighting an issue that they have, just like we have our own issues and other countries have their own. The sex trade in Japan is illegal, but it's also a booming industry because they have loopholes. 
Tokyo has a red light district and youthful girls often in school uniforms are sought out for sex, just like in other countries. But in Japan, the sex trade is often overlooked by authorities. In fact, sex cafes line entire streets where men pay to do all kinds of stuff with teenage girls. And in fact, child pornography was only outlawed in 2014. An anime that features children as young as six drawn to show extreme sexual violence is still perfectly legal. And children are pretty much the least protected group in Japan. It is illegal for a woman to be paid for sex, but not illegal for a man to solicit customers for a woman to have sex with. Uh, A large part of the problem is that there isn't much of a system to protect children. They only have about 3,200 child welfare workers uh, to about 122,000 reported cases each year. And the drive to outlaw child porn actually came from the pressure from the Swedish government. And by law to have a victim of sex trafficking, you must have arrived in Japan from another country. So Japan actually recognizes about 25 cases of human trafficking a year. And there is no official human trafficking laws. Another problem in Japan was the age of consent for sex and their rape laws. In 2019, there was public outcry for a couple of cases. In one, a man was acquitted after having sex with his own teenage daughter, and another man was acquitted from raping a woman that had passed out from a night of drinking, and he misunderstood her as giving consent. At the time, the age of consent was only 13, one of the youngest ages of consent in the world. There was also a 10-year statute of limitations on rape, and you had to prove that the rape occurred by violence and intimidation, and that it was impossible to resist, and the law took this very seriously. There was a lot of skepticism that anything could be rape that didn't include physical force. So just this year, the age of consent was raised to 16, and the definition of rape was broadened to include drugging, psychological control, and intoxication, and now recognizes consent. Um, that there are times when you can actually say no to sex, like legally and officially now. So progress. And that was the horrific murder of Junku Furuta. My God, that was horrible. Um, I read part of my script to Tim and my son Garen before recording, and the look on their faces said, just please stop talking. Um, I think this is one that takes the cake on graphic horrendous violence inflicted on an innocent person that had done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Junku was a good kid from a good family and was just trying to mind her own business. And I am horrified on behalf of her and her family and to have to live in the same country with these monsters and knowing that they are out and about and living their lives, especially Hiroshi, who's just living the dream, is sickening to me. And with that thought, I will be back again next week, which I believe is my season three finale. Wow, three seasons already. Thank you all so very much for listening. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious 
extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 